Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 679 with Josh Linkner. Josh has some excellent perspective on how you can be all the more creative and why that matters, even if you think, oh, I don't really have much room for creativity in my role. Nay, he's got a great perspective on everyday innovation, the little cool things and ideas you can bring to your work and life to experience nice incremental improvements that make a difference, are fun, make you look all the more awesome at your job. So you'll learn, one, how you can develop your creativity no matter your role. Two, the habits and mindsets of the greatest innovators. And three, how to spark new ideas when you're in a rut. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, I recommend you drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP679. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you take a look around, see all the cool resources there, like searching the full text transcripts of all the guests, the gold nugget email summaries, every episode tagged by the topic and competency covered. So if this latest episode isn't exactly what you need urgently, it's still going to be a lot of fun. But there's a whole lot of more episodes, 678 to be precise, that might have exactly what you need in this moment. So Take a spin around, awesomeatyourjob.com. We got a lot of cool stuff there. Now here's Josh's story. Josh Linkner is a creative troublemaker. He has been the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which sold for a combined value of over $200 million. He's the author of four books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Discipline Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention. As the founding partner and former CEO of Detroit Venture Partners, he's been involved in the launch of over 100 startups. Today, Josh serves as chairman and co-founder of Platypus Labs, an innovation research training and consulting firm. He has twice been named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and is a recipient of the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. Josh is also passionate about Detroit, the father of four, a professional-level jazz guitarist, and has a slightly odd obsession for greasy pizza. Big thanks to Josh for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Josh. Josh, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Truly appreciate it. Excited for our conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. Now, you've had a lot of cool, innovative moments uh, across your career. I'd love it if you could share with us one of your favorite eureka aha moments that have happened to you. 
Well, one aha moment is that I realize that human creativity is not born as much as it's developed. And the research bears this out. I mean, in fact, you know, Harvard came out with a study that shows that human creativity is as much as 80% learned behavior. And many of us think that you're either creative or you're not. You're born that way or you have to suffer. And the truth is that it's more like a, I would say it's more like your weight than your height. Try as I may, I'm not going to be a foot taller by next month, but my weight I can control. And, and our creativity is very much the same. That was a big moment for me. That's cool. That's cool. Well, and so I, I want to talk a lot about exactly how one learns to become more creative. But first, if we could make the case uh, for for creativity innovation, uh, particularly for for listeners who are like, "Hey, you know, I'm in the middle of the organization. I don't. Re- my job isn't creative per se in terms of I'm not doing uh, design or new product stuff." I'm a program manager, maybe. And so, can we make the case for for those professionals? What do they have to gain? personally and professionally, by sharpening their creative skills? Yeah, awesome question. I mean, the truth is that the way that we get ahead in organizations is really changed in the last few years. In the past, maybe it was your your knowledge of hard skills or whatever, but, but nowadays those have become outsourced, commoditized, and automated. And what allows us to really soar in our professions, to be awesome at our job, if you will, is to bring inventive thinking and creative problem solving to the game. When you really unpack why does somebody get promoted, why does somebody achieve more in their career, and most often these days it's tied to their ability to use, you know, again, inventive thinking and solve problems in fresh ways. So I think it's really become mission critical, in fact, and especially as, as you know, automation and, and robotics and artificial intelligence, you know, that's the one thing that's uniquely human about us all. The other thing I'll just quickly say is that, you know, too often, unfortunately, we, we attribute job title with creative needs. Like, for example, people in marketing should be creative and people in accounting should not. But the Mm -hmm. truth is that there's room for creativity in every single aspect in in an organization, every single box on an org chart. We can be creative in our own ways, whether you're selling or running a customer service rep team or, or, yeah, doing finance. So I think it really applies to us all. And I think that's the one thing that we can truly harness to get ahead in our careers. Mm -hmm. I dig it. Thank you. Okay, I'm sold. So then let's hear with your book, Big Little Breakthroughs. What's the big idea here? And particularly, what are micro innovations and why do they matter? Yeah, so the book, Big Little Breakthroughs, uh, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. So the big little idea is that it it sort of flips innovation upside down. You know, too often we think of innovation, it's got to be a billion dollar idea. It's got to change the world. And and it feels risky and out of reach and, and just inaccessible for most normal people. And this really flips it upside down in that it's cultivating small daily acts of creativity as opposed to these wild swing for the fences things. It's taking the small bites of creativity, which are way less risky, way more within the grasp of us all. They build critical skills and they add up to big things. So that's the premise of the book. I like to think about it as as innovation for the rest of us. It's kind of helping everyday people become everyday innovators. And a micro-innovation is just what you might think of. You know, if a, if a big innovation is inventing penicillin or the assembly line or something, that's awesome, nothing wrong with that. But, but again, most of us won't do that. Those happen once every generation. On the other hand, all of us can generate micro-innovations on a regular basis. You know, everything in, in our personal lives, is an example would be you can chill a glass of white wine by using a frozen grape. And that way you don't dilute the wine with an ice cube. Mm-hmm. So that's a micro-innovation. It doesn't change the world, but but it's helpful. In, in a professional sense, a micro-innovation might be something as simple as how you greet a customer or how you prospect for a new client or how you interact with the boss or how you conduct a job interview. And so these are things that don't change the world in and of themselves, but they add up to big things and they do create meaningful outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one to get too nitpicky over definitions here, but it's interesting with that white grape example 
in white wine. It's actually, well, now I'm going to try it. And in a way that's an innovation in that I wasn't doing it before, but I didn't, I didn't invent that. I just heard it from you and thought it was pretty cool and I'm I'm going to try it and and it might just enhance my life that little bit. Uh, But it feels like innovation is happening in my world as a result of, of trying it. Can you noodle on that with me? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, you don't have to invent something to take advantage of it. I, I love borrowing and sharing ideas. That's awesome. I mean, how great is that? Uh, if, you know, every time you get to learn a new way to do something that's better, that's a that's an aha moment that can be, you know, savored. But when we're taking advantage of and, and noticing them around us, it actually encourages us to come up with them ourselves. And so it's funny, the, the best way to get creative is just the same way that I learned to play guitar. I've been playing guitar for 40 plus years. I put myself through college as a working musician and I still play today. The way you don't play guitar is one day you wake up and say, Eureka, I've got a lightning bolt from the heavens and all of a sudden I'm a master musician. Of course not. The way you play guitar is you practice day in and day out. And the more you practice, the better you get. Same thing is true with creativity. So when we think about we want to create our, our Mona Lisas in our lives, our, you know, our things that we want to be remembered by, you don't start there. I mean, da Vinci's first painting wasn't the Mona Lisa. First, da Vinci had to learn to paint, and he had to paint bad stuff, and he painted every day, and over time, his Mona Lisa was revealed. So for us, even cultivating small ideas like putting frozen grapes in wine is a wonderful step along the process of unlocking your full creative potential. Well, it's so funny is is like that can just sort of take you down a path in terms of, oh, I could do the same thing. For for Gatorade, <laughs> I have a frozen chunk of Gatorade, or just like insert beverage, or then you could extract it a little farther in terms of, oh, if if I put a a modified version of the like something on a something, it can be enhanced in in some way. I don't know, like I could extend my post-it note by taking the same color sheet. I don't know, <laughs> and putting it to the top of where the, where the adhesive is, right? Whatever. There's some bad ideas along the way to good ideas, right? Well, real quickly, what you're going with that, I really like because you're doing pattern recognition. You're saying, Mm -hmm. if this applies here, can I apply it there? And that's actually a wonderful technique to come up with creative ideas. You know, we don't need to be imbued by the gods with some original thought every 10 seconds. We can borrow from all these things around us. A lot of times innovation comes from borrowing from one part of life and applying it to another. So that's not a cheat. That's actually a really productive approach. Cool. All right. Well, I dig it. Well, so then you talk about a number of particular simple habits that some creative folks like Lady Gaga, Banksy, Lin-Manuel Miranda have adopted that have helped pave the way for their creative success. What are some of these habits? Well, so you focus on helping people become awesome at their job. And if if you want to be awesome at anything, I feel like you got to examine the mindsets, the habits, and the tactics of people who are awesome at something, and then you can replicate and and follow their lead. So that's what I tried to do in the book. I covered the eight core mindsets of everyday innovators. I covered a lot of tactics, which I'm happy to talk about with you. But I did also really examine what are the habits? What are the daily habits of people like Lady Gaga, all the way down to normal people like you and me? And what I really examine was a, a few different things. First of all, people do work at it on a regular basis. There's a, there's a real sense of habitual repetitiveness to it. And people are always changing those habits. It's not like you just have to adopt one habit forever. It's always in flux. What I do actually, I, I keep tweaking my own. I have a five minute a day creativity habit that I do. It's sort of like taking a shot of espresso for your creativity and it lasts me for the rest of the day. But even that, like since I wrote the book, I've modified it a little bit and that, that's kind of healthy. But I'm happy to give someone a, a really be- beginning entry. And I know we like talking about tactical things on your show, but uh, try this. Do First of all, do an experiment, 14 days. Instead of worrying about, I'm going to do this forever for the rest of my life, don't overcommit. Try it for 14 days. Try this, two minutes a day. 
Two minutes, 14 days. Here's how it goes. Minute number one, I call it guzzle inputs. In software engineering, they always say if you want to change the outputs of something, you got to change the inputs. So take one minute a day and just absorb the creativity of others. Maybe you watch a YouTube video of a concert. Maybe you stare at a painting. Maybe you read a poem out loud. Nothing to do with you or your work. Just guzzle creativity of others. And it's sort of like priming the pump. The second minute of your two-minute-a-day routine is try riffing on an unrelated problem. Pick up any problem or look at a news source and just find any problem has nothing to do with you, your life, or your, your career. So maybe you see plastics, pollution, and pollution in oceans. So, okay, that's nothing to do with you. And here's what you do. Spend one minute seeing how many small ideas you could think of that won't cure it, but will help it. When we try to cure a problem all at once, it has to be so perfect that we just get all caught up and it's hard to be creative. Don't do that. Instead, say, can I come up with five little ideas that might help plastic in oceans? Can I come up with 13 little teeny baby things that might make a teeny little difference? And so here's what happens. That's like jumping jacks for your creativity. It's getting your mind going on something that you're not responsible for. It's not going to impact your life. So again, two minutes a day, one minute of inputs, one minute of outputs on an unrelated problem. Do that for 14 days and people will text me how crazy creative they feel. That's interesting. And just to be clear, like it's okay if your idea happens to be big, right? You shouldn't be like, oop, no, that's too big. Never mind. I did it wrong. Like, <laughs> in terms, because as I'm just like freewheeling about plastics, I was like, oh, well, what, what if the plastics actually dissolved over time into something that was healthy for the oceans? Or what if we had ships that are already trans-oceanically moving, have some nets and, and they get some governmental subsidies? So, so those are kind of big. But that's okay. It's not, that's not what we're shooting for. But if that's what we land on, I mean, count it. It's all good. Or, or how do we think about that? Fantastic. It's great. By the way, I love those ideas. And I mean, there's creativity in action right there. Yeah, you don't have to restrict yourself at all. But here's what happens. The risk is that when we try to solve something that big all at once, we freeze up. If, if our goal is getting a Nobel Prize or becoming, uh, you know, a 10x billionaire or something, it, we, it's too complex and, and our minds just lock. It's deer in the headlights. Whereas if you start with little ideas, then all of a sudden you're right, big ones come. And just real quickly, since we're talking about that, I'll, I hadn't talk, planned that question. So here's a perfect example from, from the book that I just love. There's, there's a problem in oceans that's actually bigger than plastics. And the problem is cigarette butts. So cigarette butts, I guess, is a bigger issue oceanic than than um, than, than plastics, and it also is a big problem in major cities, and and it's it's a terrible environmental challenge when people discard their cigarette butts on the ground. And most major cities spend millions of dollars a year, no luck cleaning it up. So enter a guy who I interviewed for the book named Trewin Resterick. Trewin lives in central London. He's not a famous guy. He's not a celebrity billionaire. He's like a normal dude. Anyway, he was faced looking at this problem of cigarette butts, and, and no, none of the solutions had worked so far. So he invents something called a ballot bin. Normal guy just had an idea. And a ballot bin works like this. Let's say you and I were having uh, fish and chips at a London pub. We walk out into the street. We're about to throw our cigarette butts on the ground. But instead, we see a glowing metal yellow box, uh, you know, 10 feet away, maybe mounted on a pole. So you walk a little closer and realize that this metal yellow box, the front of it is glass. And at the top, there's a two-part question, like, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburger? And underneath each of those, there's a little slit where you can vote with your butts. In other words, huh. you drop your cigarette butt in there, and it falls on, it's, there's a divider, so it's almost like two bar charts, and you can instantly see which of these two selections is in the lead. And the thing is totally low tech and it didn't require a billion dollars and it didn't require six PhDs or regulatory approval, but the ballot bins 
work. And when these ballot bins are installed, Trowin told me, they reduce cigarette litter by up to 80%. So this guy who just had an idea, was like a normal guy, starts a company, he now has 55 employees, and these ballot bins are in 27 countries reducing cigarette litter. So you're exactly right, man. He, he came up with an idea. He just started riffing on small ideas, and that small idea actually became a really cool big idea, changed his life, changed his career. Well, and that what's so fascinating is that gets me thinking like, huh, well, what was so darn appealing about the ballot bin? I guess it's sort of like there's a, maybe a bit of fun in terms of, oh, I have an opportunity to cast a vote uh, with this thing and uh, I'm not going to let it go to waste. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in the psychology of the smoker, but. Part of it is that you're not shaming the person into compliance. You know, you're involving them. It's it's an optional thing, and everyone likes to express themselves. And so they sort of capitalized. You're right on this on this human psychology of things. But it's this really fun, simple thing that any one of us could have come up with. And it's funny. Like to me, that is the perfect example of what the book is all about and what a big little breakthrough is all about. Again, most of us look at SpaceX and you're like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. But who's gonna do that? Most of us cannot. But most of us can come up with the ballot bins in our lives. That's cool. Okay. So you mentioned we got mindsets, we got habits, we got tactics. When it comes to mindsets, uh, you've got eight of them and you also call them obsessions. Can you tell us why the word obsession? And can you give us a quick overview of what are those eight? Sure. So just to give you a little backdrop, this is born out of not only you know 20 plus years of research on, on my own, but in practical experience. But for the book, I interviewed people all over the globe. Some were people like Trowin that you've never heard of. I also interviewed billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and uh, Grammy award-winning musicians and people from all walks of life. And I tried to extract from these amazing people, what are the commonalities? How do they think and act on a daily basis? And, and I kind of discovered the, these eight core mindsets. I call them obsessions because a mindset is sort of like, yeah, you think about it when you think about it. But an obsession is sort of like it's it's ever-present. It's a stronger word. And that's how these people sort of live. These are ever-present guidelines as they think and act and proceed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, what are they? Well, I'm happy to share as many as you'd like, uh, but I'll, I'll share a couple to start. And by the way, most of these are counterintuitive. They're the opposite of what we've been taught. So one of them is called start before you're ready. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, most of us, we see an opportunity or a problem and we wait. And we wait until we have a directive from the boss or until we have a bulletproof game plan or till we have ideal conditions. And the risk is that we just miss the opportunity altogether. So innovators of all shapes and sizes do the opposite. They just say, okay, I'm going to get started, recognizing full well they don't have all the answers. They recognize full well they need to pivot and adapt and, and adjust to changing conditions and figure it out as, as they go. But they don't wait. They just get started and find their way. Mm-hmm. Another one, again, most of these are counterintuitive, um, fall in love with the problem. A lot of times we're all solution-oriented and we see a problem and we're like, okay, what's the fastest idea that I can think of to solve the problem? But then we become fixated on our solution rather than the problem itself, and it may or may not be the best way to solve it. The best innovators do the opposite. They become fixated on the problem they're trying to solve. They bathe in it. They study it from all different angles. They look at it from different lenses, and they are willing to quickly forego one potential solution in favor of a better one. So they they remain committed to solving the problem by whatever means necessary, and that allows them to actually discover more innovative routes in doing so. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. There's a couple fun ones. One of them is called Don't Forget the Dinner Mint. And the idea behind a dinner mint, I'm sure you've been to a nice dinner and at the end of there, say, oh, here's here's something chocolate compliments of the chef. 
And if you were had ordered it, it would be nice. But because it was unexpected, it, it made all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a proportion of the restaurant's overall cost structure that was negligible. But that little dinnerment made a difference for you. So the translation for us as innovators, as everyday innovators, is when you ship a piece of work product, when you send an email, when you give a presentation, you say, okay, now that I've done what's expected, what can I add? What's the dinnerment that I could add? Maybe it's a new fresh idea. Maybe it's an extra formatting. Maybe it's an, uh, an over-delivery or a, a time saving. But the idea is plussing it up with something unexpected to, to make it transcendent. And the, the, the root issue is that competence is not a competitive advantage as a, an organization or a person. So if you're trying to get a promotion and you're competing with four other people, just doing the job well and doing it on time and being pleasant, that's table stakes. So if you really want to get the promotion, you want to beat people to the punch, you have to look for what's that little extra creative edge that you can add, an extra little dose of creativity that can make you separated from the, from the competitive pack. And one other fun one while we're talking about fun ones is called Reach for Weird. Mm-hmm. Most of us tend to gravitate toward the obvious tried and true approaches. Reach for weird is challenging us to find that bizarre, unexpected, unorthodox approach because sometimes those make all the difference in the world. I mean, just a really funny example of that is there's a little town in Iceland and they were facing a problem in that traffic incidents involving pedestrians had had risen 41% over a 10-year period. That's people getting hit by cars. And so how do you normally solve that? Well, you install more traffic lights, you hire more police officers, you issue bigger fines. The reach for weird approach instead is here's what they did. They painted the crosswalks as an optical illusion. So as people are driving their car up, it looks like these there are slabs floating in thin air. And so it completely encourages people to, to slam on the brakes instead of barrel through the intersection, solve the traffic problem, and it's pretty fun for taking selfies. So these little weird solutions that we might discard at first can ultimately lead to great gains. That also reminds me of Katie Milkman in her book. Somewhere in Europe, they wanted more people to take stairs instead of the escalator. And so they turned the staircase into a piano. And it's so like you're making notes. And, and now it's it becomes just a whole lot of fun. You're like, do, 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 you know, to utilize those. And, and that's weird. You know, no one had done it before, but it made the impact in terms of, of, of folks naturally think it's now more fun to use those stairs because it's a piano. It's a perfect example. I love I love her book too, by the way. It's, it's a wonderful book. So the other thing is some of these the mindsets interact. So another one is called use every drop of toothpaste. Mm-hmm. So the notion there is around being scrappy and resourceful, even if we're in a resource constrained environment, because most of us don't have, you know, billions of dollars to play around with, we can still be creative. And sometimes being like that every drop of toothpaste can combine with being weird. Quick example of that, you've probably had this dilemma. I certainly have. You go to the market, you want to buy bananas. So what do you do? Do you buy the yellow bananas or the green ones? If you buy the yellow bananas, they're good today. Four days later, the rest of the bunch is all mushy. You buy the green bananas, you have to wait like a month for a decent banana. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you were in the banana business, what can you do about that? Like that, not much. Well, here, this was a kind of a fun one. It was a reach for weird approach. Also using every drop of toothpaste because it cost them zero. They basically took the bananas off of the, the bunch and put them in a package organized by ripeness. So imagine seven bananas next to each other, ranging from bright yellow to green. <laughs> and as each day goes by, they're perfectly timed. So your banana for that day <laughs> is ripe. And so here's the deal. First of all, they crush the competition in terms of sales volume. Second of all, they're charging three times per ounce of banana compared to the competitive set. So it really is amazing. Weird is fun, but weird simply works. You know, Josh, what's so funny is I have actually plucked bananas across multiple bunches to get that same gradation from green to yellow and never in my wildest dreams did it occur to me that, oh, 
they should just do this for me and charge me more. <laughs> How great, right? <laughs> I may have even communicated that instruction to an Instacart shopper, or maybe I censored myself. I was like, this poor person already has enough on their mind. I'm not going to make their job any harder <laughs> with my weird banana preferences. So, but I thought about it. So, okay, cool. So, so those are some obsessions, some, some mindsets. And, and as you would adopt those and play and roll with those, it seems like you just get more ideas naturally because, because that's what's, what's going on. I think in particular, fall in love with the problem resonates because if you find that it's enjoyable to explore and play with, as opposed to get rid of the darn thing as fast as possible, then, then you get, you get more kind of reps or more minutes on engaged in the thing, then go hurry up and uh, find the answer and, and knock it out now, now, now. That's exactly right. And so if you think about, again, these three things, you got mindsets, we talked about a few of them, habits, we talked about a couple habits, and then we start to move into tactics. And, you know, for me, I wanted this book to be a very pragmatic guide. It's not just about, you know, head in the clouds, go do, be creative. It's, you know, draw over the walls with crayons, not that. It's really the saying, okay, how can we harness a skill set, human creativity, and deploy it for effective results? And so you get into tactics. Most of us, when we get together to come up with ideas, what do we do? What's it called? Brainstorming. Brainstorming. Here's the problem. Brainstorming was invented in 1958. And I'm sorry, like a lot's changed since 1958. And so I kind of view brainstorming as, as outdated technology, an outdated tactic, because actually brainstorming is wildly ineffective. We tend to share our safe ideas. We, we hold our crazy ones back because we don't want to look foolish. So the whole dynamic of brainstorming where you're, you're spitting out ideas and everybody else judges them simultaneously and shoots you down and tells you like everybody else becomes the ideal police. And then you, you, you're responsible if an idea doesn't work out. It really at best yields mediocre ideas. So over the last, you know, many years, and I've, I've interviewed people all over the world, I've developed a, a toolkit of 13 way better techniques to generate ideas. I call them idea jamming because I don't like brainstorming. And I'd be happy to share a couple of them. They're actually really fun and they're way more effective. All righty. Here's one that, that works beautifully. It's called role storming, R-O-L-E. So role storming is brainstorming, but in character. In other words, you're pretending that you're somebody else. Here's the thing. If I'm in a normal brainstorm session and I'm brainstorming as me and everybody else is judging me, again, I'll share my safe ideas, hold my crazy ones back out of fear. Mm -hmm. But if I'm role storming, in other words, I'm pretending that some, I'm somebody else, I'm free. Here's an example. Let's say I'm playing the role of Steve Jobs. No one's going to laugh at Steve for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Steve for coming up with a small one. Mm -hmm. So now I'm liberated. I'm playing Steve Jobs. I'm not responsible. I can say anything I want. And it's funny, man. I did this with a group of executives one time at Sony Japan. I met this guy. He was the stiffest human being I've ever met. Dark suit, white shirt, his ties strangling him. Anyway, we got him role storming as Yoda. All right. I've never seen personal transformation like this. This guy's jacket's off, his tie's undone. He's like leaping around the room and the whiteboards were filled with ideas. And I didn't teach him to be creative. He had that inside him, but we needed to liberate it. He was in a role that forbid it. So the technique is actually really simple. Everybody in the room gets to choose anyone they want. You can be a hero. You can be a villain. You can be a movie star or a supermodel. You can be a sports legend or literary figure, anyone you want, but you got to stay in character. And when you stay in character, attacking a real world problem or opportunity, you'll be blown away with the creative results. That's cool. That's cool. Well, so let's hear another tactic or two. Sure. Another fun one, I recommend people trying. This is called the bad idea. It's a bad idea brainstorm. So presumably we get together, we got a problem to solve, we're responsible for coming up with 
good ideas. But the problem is, again, all this pressure, it's, we get consumed with incrementalism. So instead, here's the way you do it. It's a two-part brainstorm. Step number one, set a timer for like 10 minutes. And everybody in the room starts by coming up with bad ideas. What's a terrible way to solve the problem? What's the worst thing you could think of? What's immoral or illegal or unethical? Again, you're not going to do them. You're just coming up with bad ideas. Now, part two, crucially, is you then stop and examine the bad ideas and say, wait a minute, is there a little kernel? Is there a nugget in the bad idea that I could flip around to make it a good, legitimate idea? And so what happens is you push your creativity so far to the limit, way beyond what you would ordinarily think. Then, yeah, yeah, you need to ratchet it back to reality a bit, but it's better going all the way and having to ratchet back than trying to push spaghetti up a hill. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a fun one. One that's really simple. I call it the judo flip, J-U-D-O. So let's say, again, you're trying to seize an opportunity or solve a problem. Start by taking an inventory. What have you always done before? What does conventional wisdom dictate? What is traditional thinking? How have things normally been done in our industry on a problem like this? Then you draw a line down the page. And next to every previous entry, you simply ask the question, what would it look like if I judo flipped it? What would it look like if I did the polar opposite? And and what happens is that oppositional thinking can unlock really fresh ideas and help you break free from traditionalism. Mm -hmm. That's cool. All right. Well, so I'm curious. Those are some great things to do. What are some things we should stop doing? One thing we need to stop doing is really the ideation process, or again, I call it idea jamming, really needs to be separate from the executional process. And we tend to squish them together. As mentioned, you know, I come up with an idea and the first thing you say if you're in the room is, oh, that's not going to fit in the PowerPoint slide and Jim, the boss, is never going to support it. That's going to break the budget. And so we get so focused on the executional challenges that we extinguish our ideas prematurely. A better approach would be to send your analytical brain out for Starbucks and let the ideas really fly. One of the things I like to do is I call it idea spewing. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you have an idea almost, or even I call it idea sparking sometimes, an idea sort of means that, oh, it's an idea. So that merits scrutiny. But a spark or a spew, that implies that it's early versions. It's, It's the clay that hasn't yet been molded to perfection. And so that helps us prevent the premature extinguishing of a good idea, because often it's not the first thing that comes to mind. It's the idea that leads to the idea that leads to the next idea that's the killer. And if you extinguish it prematurely, you can really cut yourself short. That's good. Thank you. Well, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Sure. The core thing I would really reinforce to people is that every single person on this planet has creative capacity period. And again, I've researched every academic journal, neuroscience up and down. We all have the ability to be creative and we can do so in our own ways. Like I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I try. So just because if you're listening, you can't paint on cannabis doesn't mean you're not a creative person. You might express your creativity in the way you interact with a colleague or the way you solve a problem with on a project. But truthfully, we can all harness it and build this. And I always like to think of it like this. If you outside your home had an oil well, Like you just learned that, oh, good news, in your backyard on the property that you own, there's a billion dollars of oil sitting under there. Pretty sure you wouldn't be like, nah, I'll forget. I I don't really have time for that. You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go buy a drill and, and suck the, you know, get that resource to the surface and use it. Well, I would suggest to everybody listening that we have that oil well and it's inside of us right now. That's dormant creative capacity. I have it. You have it. We all have it. And so that's our oil well. It's waiting to be tapped. And when we bring it to the surface, we can unlock fresh possibilities, which manifest in terms of winning more customers and and getting the promotion that you want and making more money and pursuing your calling and 
driving impact, all the things that we crave, gaining competitive advantage, et cetera. So I just feel like if that dormant capacity is there, and we know we all have the ability to bring it to the surface, why not learn the mindsets, habits, and tactics to fully deploy it so that we can enjoy the results? That's good. Thank you. All right. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorites is a Chinese proverb, man who says it can't be done should not interrupt man doing it. <laughs> I've always loved that. It's just so, so impactful. And one though of my own quotes, I, and I, I don't really, you know, boast or anything. It's not, I say it with humility, but I've said this for again and again, as I was building my own company so much that my people got sick of hearing it, is that someday a company will come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. Mm-hmm. And that applies to us personally too. Like I feel that someday, like the Josh of tomorrow is going to put me out of business might as well be me. And the notion there is just that challenging ourselves and our organizations to proactively reinvent, to rethink our approach, to be the one to put ourselves out of business rather than waiting for someone else to do it. And that also ties to another quick quote. If you don't like change, you're probably going to like irrelevance even less. Okay. That's from General <laughs> Eric Shinsiki. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One thing that's so cool to me is that the littlest adjustments can actually unlock the biggest gains. So there was one study that I wrote about at a university in Italy where they brought people together, same demographics, age, education levels, divided them in two, and they showed each group a video and then asked them to take a standardized creativity test. The only difference was the video they were shown. One group was shown a really boring video, like sheeps grazing in a meadow. The other group was shown an awe-inspiring video, majestic cliffs and soaring eagles and all kinds of stuff. That was the only difference. They gave them the same test. The awe-inspired group outperformed the boring group by 80%. Hmm. And it wasn't like they learned a new skill in that three-minute video. It's just that the brains that we have, we are hardwired to be creative. And the slightest adjustments can unlock fresh possibility as evidence in that example. Yeah, that makes me feel better about paying more for the office space with a great view. (laughs) Totally. I mean, think about that. Artists, musicians, playwrights went to inspiring places for years to do inspiring work, but most of our offices look like a sensory deprivation chamber. (laughs) And then we wonder why we're not delivering great creative work. So yeah, you're right. Environment matters for sure. Mm -hmm. And a favorite book? Recently, I thought Adam Grant's new book, Rethink, is excellent. I think John Acuff's new book, Soundtracks, is excellent. One of my all-time favorites is by Robin Sharma, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, which is excellent and spiritually inspiring to me. So it's always hard to choose one. I guess one other I'd just add to the list is uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is also incredible. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. Yeah, my favorite tool, I think, is really having a guitar in my hand. And, and I think the nice thing is we all can have our own muse, but the notion is whatever your muse is, whether it's a painting or, or music, it's just like having it nearby. So when I'm stuck on a problem, I'll like grab my guitar and start noodling. And of course, the guitar doesn't solve the problem, but it helps me solve the problem. And is there a particular nugget you've shared, you already did one, that really seems to connect and resonate with readers and they quote it back to you frequently? I hear a lot about this concept of judo flipping. You know, taking the traditional approach and flipping it upside down. I've had people come, I've been sharing that little nugget for years and people come up to me years later like, hey, I just was in a board meeting and we couldn't figure out what to do and we judo flipped it. And so that that's what I, I do here frequently. You know, I think the other one I, I talk about often is this concept of option X. The better general idea is that when we make decisions, when we're trying to solve a problem, we very quickly go from unlimited possible ideas to a very short list. I think about it as A, B, and C. Somehow it becomes a multiple choice. And your A, B, and C choices are based on historical reference. They're generally really safe, and we pursue those. And I always just say, before you choose A, B, and C, just pause for one second and say, wait a minute. Is there a D? Is there an E? 
Or I say, is there an option X, which is that bold and provocative and unexpected idea that might make all the difference in the world? Just one, one, one other quick ad. I've written about this and I've gotten a lot of feedback. Speaking of letters, it reminded me. So we, most of us pursue a career and often it's pretty safe. Like we're, you know, been taught to play it safe. And then we, we build a secondary plan called a plan B, which is what happens if everything goes wrong, then that's your plan B. I would encourage people not to discard their plan B, but have an extra plan. And it's not what happens if everything goes wrong. It's what happens if everything goes right. I call it your plan Z. So the plan Z is expecting a good outcome instead of a bad one. And it's like, what would you do if you couldn't fail? What would you do if if you had a magic wand? What would you do if you, you were pursuing your true calling? And I'm not saying we should throw caution to the wind. Have a plan B. Awesome. But let's not do that at the expense of ha- also having a plan Z. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would suggest you check out BigLittleBreakthroughs.com. Certainly you can learn more about the book, but even if you don't choose to buy the book, there's a lot of free resources. There's a free creativity assessment you can take. There's a quick start guide. There's all these downloadable worksheets on habits, mindsets, and tactics. So it's a good place. It's a resource library, really, if you want to get your creativity on and take your game to the next level. If you want to reach me, I'm on all social channels at my name, Josh Linkner, which is J-O-S-H-L-I-N-K-N-E-R. And my personal website is just joshlinkner.com. All right, Josh, this has been a treat. Thank you. And I wish you all the best in your creative adventures. Thank you. You as well. I really appreciate the impact that you're creating for everybody listening. I love what Josh had to say. And the idea of the tiny innovations is lovely and something that you can celebrate in terms of this little thing I thought of, I'm doing now, life is better, and maybe it's only a percent better, but thinking about James Clear Atomic Habit stuff, the aggregation of marginal gains, boy, that really can add up over time and be transformational and exciting. So great stuff from Josh. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP679. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 